Our talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to your Monday Buckeye Talk. Cleveland.com, Doug Labor and Nathan Baird. Modified Monday Madness. We are going to do two main football topics about Ohio State that do branch out a bit. The second subject we're going to deal with is the raises, the contracts for the Ohio State football staff. Nathan, you got those a couple days ago. It's part of an open records request. It's kind of an annual thing that they send out when they're all ready. So we'll talk about how much the Ohio State assistants are getting paid, who got a raise, what the pool is, what it tells us about Ohio State football. And then at the end, we'll do a modified what you're watching mostly. And we'll talk a little bit about the NCAA tournament and the Big Ten in that. But we're going to start off with Big Ten football scheduling, Nathan, because the Athletic had an update on that. This is going to be decided the Athletics said by summer, they're going to come to a conclusion on what the Big Ten scheduling model is going to be starting in 2024 when USC and UCLA get here. There's apparently three proposals that are out there. How big of a deal do you think this is, Nathan? Because this is kind of, this is a meat and potatoes kind of thing. It's who your team plays, which is why we're doing what they pay coaches second, because that's not a meat and potatoes thing. That's like a high finance thing. How does it really affect me until things get sideways? Maybe it means your cost, your tickets go up, but like, Hey, you only get 12 games each fall. And what they're deciding here, Nathan is who Ohio state's going to play. How big a deal is it? So I thought the single most important thing in the athletic report and all of these things have been out there in some capacity, right? Like we had talked about them before as these, these options being floated out there, the two protected rivals, the three protected rivals, a hybrid option, whatever. Those are the three things. The most important thing in there as it relates to Ohio state, I think by far was it was almost just kind of a hidden line in their article that it now sounds like neither USC or UCLA will be a protected rival of either Ohio State or Michigan. That was the thing that was sort of hanging out there because we know from, I talked to Gene Smith last fall and he seemed very confident at the time that Ohio State will be locked with Michigan and Penn State both in whatever they come up with. So then there had been this speculation that if because of the TV partners influence or whatever, that Ohio State might get paired with USC, especially as that third team. And what that was going to mean, was that a reason why Ohio State was doing what it did with the Michigan uh, contract is, or I'm sorry, the the uh, Washington contract. Is that what, you know, how is that going to change just a, a, the, the, the year to year way that you think about non-conference scheduling? If now you have that loaded of a, of a, a conference thing locked in, but it sounds like that is not the case. And that was, I think the thing that fans had been maybe the most wary about moving forward in the big 10 was even if you are going into a 12 team expanded format to be locked into those three opponents and then to have the years where you would randomly also pull in a Wisconsin or a Michigan state or Maryland, the year that they're, decide to be really good or, or whatever, that it suddenly becomes a, 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 a tough schedule, even in a year in a, when you have to, um, you know, get in a 12 team format. So I thought that was the biggest thing was what, what they're saying now probably won't happen. And that scenario, there, there's no part of that, that actually would have made sense that Ohio state is like, Hey, our protected rival, our number one, the, the most important rivalry, not just in big 10, but in college football is the, other is the second best team in this conference. Right. So that's already protected. Then our other rival, our next most important potentially protected game 
is like the third best program in this conference as constituted right now with Penn State. And then we're going to have a third protected rival that's going to be the next great team that's coming in. There's zero, zero part of that that makes sense other than TV networks jamming it down their throat. But that also is the point where Ohio State says, we're all the value anyway. And USC is bringing value no matter who they play. The idea to this is that people will watch USC, Iowa. Well, maybe not USC, Iowa. USC, Rutgers. Well, maybe not USC, Rutgers. USC, Maryland. Mm. They'll watch USC, Minnesota. The yeah. whole idea to this, we get some, because uh, sometimes you get wrapped up in when the two powers play each other. The real thing of this is having a team that is so interesting or has such a huge fan base on its own, it kind of doesn't matter who they play, that they carry that game against the other teams in your conference that people actually don't care about. So if this somehow would have been a thing, that to me would have been, I don't know, a sign of Ohio State weakness. Because as much as maybe like Ohio State fans think it's cool, you cannot allow that to happen. Where you have three protected rivalries and it's Michigan, Penn State, USC. You can't live in that world. So I guess it's a good sign. Good in quotation marks, whatever that means. It's a normal sign that maybe it's off the table. But man, that would have been a disaster. So the way Gene Smith characterized it to me last fall, talking about Michigan and Penn State, was Michigan was going to be the historic rival. Penn State was going to be the competitive rival. And then USC could have been the financial rival. That could have been the thing that the TV networks had had wanted. I, I do think that the, the, the athletic article made a good point. Because the USC-USC-UCLA thing hangs out there, it, it creates some logistical issues as far as when teams travel and play them and what do you do the next week with those teams? What if you're just playing a, a, a late game? There's all sorts of things that go into it. I, there's part of me now that wonders if you want to really get into the conspiracy speculation stuff, because those games when Ohio state plays Washington or anybody out West has value too. And I think those TV networks probably want those games to happen too. So you want those games to at least be an option in the future, Ohio State, Oregon, Ohio State, whoever out West. So I think that by not locking Ohio State into USC, you give yourself the option of also having some of those non-conference games out West. Because I think if you lock yourself, if you lock Ohio State into USC, they're not playing anybody out West in the regular season. So then the other part of this report, so this report, three ideas, three rivals, two rivals, or a mix of rivals. Some teams have one, some have two, some have three. What is not on the table, according to this report, is one rival. That everybody just has one rival. And then, that. And so that's Ohio State, Michigan, obviously. So then what that indicates to me, Nathan, and, and you have reported on this a lot from Gene's lips, is Ohio State, Penn State every year. That feels locked in. And that feels to me going, that has gone from the wish list for Ohio State to, by this reporting, locked in. Because if there's going to be a hybrid model where some teams have one rival, some have two, some have three, the Ohio State wouldn't have one in that scenario. Ohio State would be like, no, then, okay, if we're going to have the option of, of maybe at least two, then we want to, we want Penn State. So I've gone back and forth. I, I don't think there has to be a world 
where Ohio State and Penn State play every year. Maybe from Penn State's standpoint, it is. From Ohio State's standpoint, I don't think it is. I get it's good for the Big Ten. I don't think it would have blown a hole in Ohio State football to not have it. But do, do you sense that vibe? And have you sensed that vibe all along of Ohio State, Penn State's got to happen every year? It seemed like something that Gene actually also really wanted to. The Ohio State side kind of wanted this too. And I would think from a television partner standpoint, the influence that they have, that's a, that's a big value game to have on the to lock in every year, right? Because if you don't, then that means that once in a while you're giving up Ohio State, Penn State to have Ohio State, uh, Indiana or Ohio State Rutgers or Ohio State Maryland, and it's a noon game that goes on BTN. But the the, the Ohio State Penn State game is going to be a big thing for your major partners every single year, no matter what time of day it's played, no matter which month it's played in like it's gonna be a massive game so i think for all parties involved it's important to keep that game but gene was at the time very uh, when i again this is this is reporting goes back to october november when i talked to him but he didn't seem like those were the two that he seemed to care about and then after that it was kind of a shoulder shrug as to like well maybe there'll be a third team maybe there's some teams that only have one The, the good thing is the flexibility i guess that it gives the league in that model the hybrid model uh, but it also the the athletic reported that that from their sourcing that was the one that coaches kind of across the Big Ten did not seem that enthused about, and I think they're probably worried about a competitive imbalance that might result in that somehow. There's actually, I think it actually would create less competitive imbalance to allow the flexibility because the thing that is difficult is if you get to a point, well, well, there's a solution. There's actually an easy solution here. But if you do say, hey, this team has three rivals they have to play every year, so let's make everybody play three rivals, and then you end up locking in. Again, for Ohio State, if they're going to have three rivals and two of them are Michigan and Penn State, the third rival has to suck. There's just no discussion about that. The third rival in that scenario for Ohio State has to be Maryland, Rutgers, or Indiana. There's no other possibility. That's who the third rival has to be. And who wants to lock that crap in? Yeah. You cannot live in a world where Ohio State's third rival is good. And you're not going to make Ohio State's third rival Wisconsin or I Iowa think, or Nebraska. I think Illinois. Illinois could be a good one. You got the you got the Illabuck. Not a turtle. And, well, maybe okay. Maybe and they're not yeah. they're they're roughly the same as Maryland right now. I more upside because I think we we're both uh Burt fans, but but roughly the same. Program. But but it's also a world, frankly, where if you're going to make everybody have three rivals and you're not having Rutgers or Maryland, neither Rutgers or Maryland are playing Ohio State. So now yeah. both Rutgers and Maryland are having like a third rival that's two thirds the way across the country. It's like mm-hmm. Ohio State is the second closest program to both Rutgers and Maryland. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, so like you have Ohio State has to work in there with one of those suckball teams. So anyway, suckball <laughs> leaders, legends and suckballs, suckball. So. There's an easy solution. There's an easy solution. There's an easy solution, and we'll get to it. What do you like of these proposals? So just to lay the groundwork for people, they're going to play nine conference games. So nine conference games, you could play three rivals every year in a 16-team league. You take yourself out, so there's 15 people you can play. You play three every year, and then you have the 12 others that you play every other year or in a two-year cycle. It's easy math. The one, the only thing that's good, the best thing about three rivals is the math is easy. 
You have three teams you play every year, and then the other 12 teams, you you have six games for them in the schedule every year. So it's just back and forth. Three teams every year, 12 teams, two out of four years. Simple math. If you have two rivals, that means you have seven games to play the 13 other teams. So it's just, it gets a little honk wanky. But also, by the way, just so people know, it's been wanky, which is why Ohio State has played Purdue a little bit less often because everybody plays their division and then there's only one protected rival in the current 14-game structure across divisions and it's Indiana-Purdue. And the result is everybody in the West plays Indiana a little bit less and everybody in the East plays Purdue a little bit less. And it's fine. So it would just be that, or there's the hybrid model where maybe this team has one rival, this team has two, this team has three. That actually, I do, I do think creates some smart flexibility because it's one of those things, just because there might be a, a, a school out there that has three legitimate rivals, for instance, Minnesota or Iowa, right? You can say Iowa, Iowa, what is the point of existing for Iowa football if they're not going to play Nebraska, Wisconsin, and Minnesota every year, right? But just because you want Iowa to play those three schools every year, does that mean Ohio State has to play Rutgers every year? Just because you need to have the same number of rivals? Or should you just then let Ohio State have two rivals and Iowa can have three? And some of those Western division teams can have three. That's fine. I do think there's some smart flexibility to the hybrid. But I also understand football coaches are like, me no like uneven balance. And it's like, actually, dude, it would be better balance. But I don't actually think they'll do that. I, and is it balance? Is it the liking the having the certainty of who you know you're going to play because then you can use it in recruiting sometimes, especially if you're recruiting the West Coast. And that's the other thing that is is helpful about the um, the hybrid model is you could make USC and UCLA rivals, like the one protected rival that each of them has, and then you don't have to worry about pinning someone else with them for a long period of time. You can mix them around the conference and that's just sort of the price they'll have to pay now you assume you would try to get them in with nebraska or iowa or whatever so it's a slightly shorter trip than when they would have to fly to to maryland or rutgers or whatever but um that's another advantage of it so i think i actually like the hybrid model too i think i also and i sometimes go back and forth on how much i care about like traditional things especially in the reality of modern college football but Gene Smith also said last fall that the idea that every team plays in every venue at least once every four years had become a thing that at least the ADs and the presidents or whoever were enthused about. I don't know how much the coaches care, but kind of maybe they would, too, because, again, I think I can kind of come into recruiting sometimes. So, like, you can tell a kid you're recruiting from Minnesota and be like, well, we're definitely going to come back and play in Minnesota in the next four years. Like, your family will get to come to a game, you know, in your backyard. So, I don't know how much that matters in football. I know it matters more in other sports sometimes, but I, I kind of like that concept that you don't have to go seven years between Iowa coming to Ohio state, that there's more uh, of that spread year to year. But I just, I like the idea of flexibility. The problem with flexibility though, is do sometimes the people that would benefit the most from the flexibility don't like to be treated that way. Don't want to be um, treated as like with kid gloves or whatever. So that could be part of the problem here. The other thing here is that this is a temporary solution until Oregon and Washington join the Big Ten. So we could pretend that they're making a scheduling plan for the next 80 years, but they're not. Because either they're going to realign or expand or we're all going to hurtle into the sun. And then if we if we hurtle into the sun, I don't know, scheduling model. I mean, it still would matter a little bit. 
as we hurdle. Because if we hurdle into the sun, I don't know, the sun's kind of far away. There might be a couple football seasons in there, even as we know we're hurtling into the sun. We'd be like, oh, man, it kind of sucks that we're hurtling into the sun. But at least Ohio State plays Iowa on Saturday. We can see if Iowa can score 25 points. That'll take our minds off hurtling into the sun for three hours. So this is a temporary solution. And like when Nebraska joined, it was like, well, you know, this and that, whatever. But you know what they did? They made Nebraska and Ohio State play each other right away. So, by the way, there's no way that USC is going to be a permanent rival of Ohio State. There's also no way that USC and UCLA are not both going to be in Ann Arbor and in Columbus in the first four years of this situation. So whatever it is, Ohio State is going to have USC or UCLA on the schedule in year one, and Michigan's going to have UCLA or USC on the schedule in year one in 2024, and then they're going to have it. It, they're gonna they're gonna lean into that. They're just not gonna make it permanent and be like, okay, well, once we give everybody what they want, this hot app, ooh, hot app. They're not also gonna make you have the same app ten straight years, theoretically, even though they're gonna realign again. So, what would you pick, Commissioner Baird? And by the way, this is not completely made up because you could be the next Big Ten commissioner because. I guess Kevin Warren's still on the job. I thought he was done. How can no, the Bears have a draft? What's he, what's he, they have to draft somebody. They have to decide who they're drafting ninth. Kevin, not, what are you doing? He's not there to build a team. He's there to build a stadium. That's true. But don't they, they need to get shovels in ground, Kev? Kev, yeah, what's he doing? When's he done? When's he done? The, Do you know when he's done? Uh, I, I don't remember the exact date, but it's it's this spring. Okay. It ends this spring. So So anyway, are you going to apply? You assume I haven't already. Oh, well, it would be, would you give cleveland.com inside access or no? Um, that's a fantastic question. Um, well, what do you, what, what, what do you mean by inside access? I just want every leak to come to us instead I would of let, leaking how the big 10 does now. I would let, uh, cleveland.com take its, beverages from the hospitality room out onto the playing floor oh. without pouring them into a big 10 approved cup. I will go. That's I good. will absolutely commit to that. You'll get an exception and people complain, but I'll say, Hey, they're special. Cause I also would not want to give up the right to mercilessly mock mm-hmm. this league for refusing to do preseason polls because they're afraid of their own shadow. And I feel like if you were going to leak to us, and that we would like be a PR firm, which which one you get leaked to all the time. That's kind of what you end up being for an organization. You're the trial balloon. So it, so I wouldn't want to stop saying the Big Ten is filled with babies who are afraid to rank themselves because somebody's feelings might get hurt. I wouldn't want to stop saying that just to get leaks under the Baird administration. So would you allow us to continue to mock this league of babies who are more worried about hurting feelings than actually establishing a protocol of let's decide who we think is going to be good? So that, for instance, when every stinking announcer during the Big Ten tournament and during the NCAA basketball tournament talks about Penn State was picked blank in the preseason, Northwestern was picked blank in the preseason, wasn't in the Big Ten poll because there isn't a Big Ten poll. And they never give credit to the media poll that exists outside of the Big Ten or our football media poll that exists outside the Big Ten so that those announcers have something to say. If I want to say 
baby, 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 you're a bunch of babies. Would that be okay with you, Commissioner Baird? I would, yeah, I, I would welcome that. Maybe I would do something oh. about that. Maybe I would, I oh, would uh, unilaterally impose that uh, it's time to join the real world and, and rank our teams. Yeah, or you could just hire me to run, to be the poll guy. Hmm. Poll guy. Because there <laughs> used to be a guy phrase. like... <laughs> Buckeye talk. There was this guy, right? I've talked about this before, the Heisman pundit, who was like this guy who outside the Heisman trophy gathered up all the votes and basically told people who was going to win the Heisman before the Heisman. And the Heisman was like, we can't have this. You're taking all the, exp- uh, the suspense away. And so they hired him. So I just want that. I just want to be able to make money off calling this league a bunch of babies. So here's what do you, Commissioner Baird, what do you like? Three rivals, two rivals, hybrid model, or would you go off the board as a commissioner and do one rival? I, I think I would do the hybrid model. I Because again, I, I think that's what a commissioner, where a strong commissioner would step up and say, uh, you know what? Some of you aren't going to be treated equally here. And for some schools, we'll probably be fine with that. Again, like if if you told Ohio State, like, well, you only have two rivals and it's Michigan and Penn State, but Maryland gets three rivals and you would just stop them and say, well, I don't even care who they are. Like Maryland can have eight rivals if you want them to. Like, it doesn't matter because one team to another, it really doesn't matter. So just do whatever is best for the, the conference as a whole. And if, if the hybrid model gives you the freedom to get there, then that's what I would do. Okay. So I do think the two rival model works. And let's establish this baseline. And we'll just, we've done a version of it. Everybody does this. It's like the easiest post for the people who don't actually cover the team and just whatever, sit at their houses and act like they know what they're talking about. So, which is fine. But, because you can just pull this out of your ear and be like, oh, a protected rivals. But we're doing that here, but we have a popular podcast. So that there's more to it. Or Buckeye Talk, we could do, we worked hard to establish our ability to pull things out of our ears. These are the rivalries to me that must, must, must. And I don't want to overdo must, Buckeye talk, because there are things that the Big Ten has punted at times that you could be like, oh, but they started playing in 1886. And then when they went to Legends and Leaders, the Big Ten itself was like, ah, the heck with it. These are the ones that have to be protected. Ohio State, Michigan, Indiana, Purdue, not necessarily in order. Ohio State, Michigan first, yes. Yes. Illinois, Northwestern. Minnesota, Wisconsin. Iowa, Minnesota. Minnesota just has two really historic, important ones, which already complicates things, right? Mm -hmm. Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, Minnesota, I think are like equally as important. Michigan, Michigan State. You've got to, I mean, how can you be in the same state and not play each other? I do think Iowa, Nebraska, that's new. But it's like if you're going to ask Nebraska to be in and then it's like you're a corn state and you're a corn state and then you don't have the corn states play. It's like, what are we doing? Well, they've already you have to play that. And they've already really embraced that rivalry very quickly. Yeah. The corn, the corn, the corn, uh, the corn thing. And then USC, UCLA, obviously. But that's where that's it. That's only eight. And the only school, the only two schools that had two rivalries. There are three schools. Three schools have two rivals they have to play. Michigan has to play Ohio State, Michigan State. Iowa has to play Nebraska and Minnesota. And Minnesota has to play Wisconsin and Iowa. So those are the only ones that have two they have to play. So then you just fill in on the things that make sense. And I do think it's pretty easy 
And to come up with here are the two rivals for everybody, I think is pretty easy. So we're going to do that very quickly. Nathan, you may take notes if you'd like, and then you could tell me where you disagree with me on this and think that I'm wrong. Ohio State's two rivals, Michigan and Penn State. Any any disagreement about that, Nathan? No, I think that's those are the two. Michigan's two rivals, Ohio State and Michigan State. Agree? Uh, yes, I yeah, I'm fine with that. Penn State's two rivals, Ohio State, and then you've got to give Penn State one of the East Coast schools, right? Otherwise, like, right. what are we doing? So I did Maryland. I do think there's a little more to Penn State, Maryland than there is to Penn State Rutgers. I also have a separate Rutgers solution. So Penn State gets Ohio State and Maryland. Any huge issues with that? I, I think that's the right one, especially if, uh, well, I, I, I guess the one pushback I would say is, the way Gene had described the two rivals would be one historic, one competitive, and Ohio State is Penn State's competitive rival. So then Penn State is Maryland a Maryland is more competitive with Penn State in general. Is there something more to the history of Penn State Rutgers? I don't know. I that's I could see either way there. But I think you're right, it has to be yeah, one no, of those two. I do think Penn State has more of a history with Maryland. They used to play the big thirty three game, Pennsylvania versus Maryland. Okay. Before, I think that's a thing. Okay. Also, I think Gene, Gene, again, I think has a lot of great ideas that the minute he says them a day later, they're different. So this whole like, very true, like historic rival, competitive rival is like, he could have changed his mind on that four hours later. So this is better. Anyone listening, sometimes I wonder, does the Big Ten office monitor this? Like to say, how many times did Doug call us a bunch of babies today? If you're monitoring this podcast for that, write this down. This is the answer. We're giving you the answer. You have a focus group. You're all, you have big meanings. This is the answer. Uh, Maryland, Penn State, and Rutgers. So, again, again, that gets pretty simple there. Do you any issues with that for Maryland? No, I think that's yeah, that's how I would do it. And then Rutgers would be Maryland right. and well, don't 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 jump. This is because the Rutgers one is the fanciest one. Okay, uh, Michigan State. Michigan State is Michigan and Indiana because Michigan State and Indiana play for the old spit bucket. I think it's called. Is that right? The spit bucket. Sure. The old, the old spit bucket. Oh, back in the day, I used to ride my horse from Lansing to Bloomington, and I'd have a spit bucket, and I'd say, "You won the game. Here's a bucket of spit." That's a thing they did back then. So, congratulations to the old spit bucket. Is back alive. That's a real thing. People think I'm making this up. Look, it's under his old brass spittoon played 69 times between 1922 and 2022. I'm not just making up spit stuff. Uh, Indiana, Purdue, and then Michigan State. We just talked about the spit bucket. That's two buckets. One's a spit bucket and one's a bucket made of oak. Mm -hmm. So you have a chance to win if you're you're Tom Allen. You could go three and nine. But be like, man, we won two buckets this year. Here's the bucket made of oak, and here's the spit bucket. And then people will be like, give that man an extension. So that works out great. I'm going to save Rutgers for later. Okay. Nebraska gets Iowa and Wisconsin. Iowa gets Nebraska and Minnesota. Wisconsin gets Minnesota and Nebraska. And Minnesota gets Iowa and Wisconsin. And they can just be in the middle and just roll around in the mud together. Right? Are we good with all of that? Does all make sense? You said Minnesota was both Wisconsin and Nebraska? No, Minnesota. The the game that does not get played there is... So Minnesota is Iowa and Wisconsin. Okay. Minnesota does not play Nebraska, and Iowa does not play Wisconsin in that little four-way right there. 
Okay. So those are the ones you have to live with. I think we'll live with it. Yeah. Okay. Purdue gets Indiana, obviously, and then Illinois. So I think that's okay. Right? Is that okay? Yes. That's, I think that's good. And then Illinois gets Northwestern and Purdue. Okay. Okay. You good with that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So then USC and UCLA get each other. So then there's two games left. So then who's the second game for USC and UCLA is really the discussion here, right? Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing of a two-team model. Who do these teams play? So what are we going to do with the teams from LA? We're going to send them to the big cities. And we're going to have USC play Northwestern because they are two private schools in big cities. Mm-hmm. And we are going to have UCLA play Rutgers because they are two public schools in big cities. And if you can buy, find a better rival for Rutgers than a New York-LA rivalry, and if you can find a better second rival for Northwestern than a Chicago-LA rivalry, this conference wants to be the conference of big cities and then all the land in between. But lean into this. You have the three biggest markets, so have them play each other every year and come up with some ridiculous made-for-TV trophy for the New York LA trophy and the Chicago LA trophy. And I can't find a better solution than that. And honestly, if you're worried about the extensive travel of those two games, and there's going to be other options like that, other, other instances like that, but make it like a week zero showcase and give them the extra week off in between. Like you can do a lot of things with it. And like make a, yeah. I mean like, but also like fly in New York to LA. People do that all the time. Fly in Chicago to LA. People do that all the time. Yeah. Like that's much easier than being like, Oh, now I got to get from East Lansing to L.A. Or I got to get from L.A. to Bloomington, Indiana. Right. So just right. lean into the city-fied part of this. And as ridiculous as it sounds for U.S. UCLA and Rutgers to play each other every year, I don't know. Is it any more ridiculous than any other part of the Big Ten existing in this new way? Right. The one thing that you would have with almost any other team except Rutgers in Maryland is some more past history between the Pac-12 and the Big Ten where UCLA and USC would have played, right? Like uh, Illinois has probably played both of those in in various bowl games over the years. So I I guess that's one thing if you're grasping for connections. But I also think that your logic makes a lot of sense to to have a a rivalry with the big cities there. And I think the USC-Northwestern pairing also is smart. Okay, so that's two for everybody. And the thing that like the thing that you didn't get that's the greatest loss probably is Minnesota, Nebraska, and Iowa, Wisconsin. But it's not like they're not gonna play each other. Right. So I mean right. and then the rest of it, and then this gives you 13 foes that you're not playing in your league that you'll play seven of those 13 every year. So I think it's really reasonable and it's just a patch until they get to 18 or 20 and it's just a whole different discussion right and i do think there's a possibility of when you get to 18 or 20 where you go back to divisions and you just again part of this is we just would have to start thinking of conferences and divisions in different ways and it almost would be like your division is what your conference used to be that if you're in the Big Ten East in a 20-team conference, your 10-team Big Ten East is like the Big Ten, sort of, right? It's it's it's, And then the 10-team Big Ten West is like sort of like the West 
I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, we're just in a place where the past doesn't matter at all. So, or it's just words, right? I mean, like we're a TV network. We are a 20 team TV network, but it's actually two different conferences, honestly. So, I mean, I think, but, but we'll cross that bridge. This is to figure out what to do in 2024 and 2025. And does this feel like this would be a good football setup for fans, for TV, for competitiveness in the 12 team playoff? What do you think? I think it's important that you lock in, start small and make sure you lock in the most, most, most important ones. And I think if, if you start from that point, then again, that's where the hybrid model comes in because that allows you the freedom of saying, well, let's not even, let's not stretch it and add somebody to UCLA and USC. Let's leave them at one, but let's make sure we get that third, that, uh, you know, uh, Nebraska, Minnesota game. Like, because that, you know what I mean? Like it's, it gives you that flexibility. But I think as long as you're protecting those, those core games, then that's the most important thing because we're just getting into a point where we, we can't protect history just for its the sake of it. There, there's too much else at stake financially and competitively in the way that this sport is changing. And that has to be, so protect the core ones, but then very quickly make a decision that is, that is what is in the best interest of the whole league. Knowing that Ohio State canceled the Washington series for 2024 and 2025, which you said right off the top, how much money would you bet that Ohio State plays USC in 2024 and 2025? Oh, uh, a lot. If not USC, then certainly UCLA, but most likely USC. And uh, at least in 2024. Now, 2025 was a game where they was a year where they were already kind of weirdly doubling up on power five non-conference opponents. They also played Texas that year. So that was the game that they kept of those two. But 2024, I, I, I can't imagine. It, wouldn't that be like actually the week zero showcase? USC against Ohio State in prime time on opening night of the football season? Yeah, I think that's very possible. Actually, that's I probably would. Why week zero? Just because of the travel? Oh, just to As just to, to just one? to make it the big game, but yeah, week one, whatever. Like, but I I could definitely yeah. see that being the season opening. I can't remember exactly what the dates are because it's been jumbled around a little bit on the schedule, but um, wouldn't shock me, no. But for Ohio State, like Ohio State opens at USC on Saturday night in that window, and then comes back and plays a Patsy in week two to recover. Right? I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And you play you play UCLA, Michigan in 2024 also, and then, or UCLA, Penn state. And then maybe in 25, it's not, it doesn't have to be the home and home right away. Right. So that, as you said, maybe right. you don't have to do everything in two year clusters. Like, Oh, Ohio state went to USC in 2024. So that means in USC fact, is kind of owes a trip to Columbus, but maybe it's in 26 or 27. And in fact, I think that's where Ohio state would probably use some influence. Maybe they would be like, all right, like we'll do the road trip in 2024, but you can't put USC in a year where we already have, again, Texas on the non-conference and, and you're already locked us into Michigan and Penn State, which they like. But like, yeah, you can't add that. So I think that's probably right, that that would probably be kicked down the line a little bit. Okay. 2024, Ohio State's first game of the year at USC. Boy, does mark that down. sound. Boy, uh, yeah. No, let's mark that down. Let's mark that down because it's going to come out this this summer. We can revisit this and see if we were right. Okay, yeah, there, there's an AD meeting in May. They said that they could you they may release it as early as May or get trickled out as early as May. Anything else about the schedule, Nathan, or do we think we uh, took our listeners correctly few through this whole thing? I think those were the most 
the, the biggest considerations. Again, just in knowing that they wouldn't necessarily be locked into USC or UCLA, at least that's what it sounds like in every year, I think is a big deal. And that Penn State is almost almost certainly will be locked in. So I think that's probably uh, the sweet spot for all involved. Okay, when we come back, we'll talk about raises, salaries, salary pool for the Ohio State football assistance. We'll do it next on Buckeye Talk. Doug and Nathan, if you'll be a tech subscriber, 614-350-3315. Make sure you're reading cleveland.com slash OSU and College Football Survivor Show. That's where Shahan Jeharaja and I talk through lots of stuff on the national college football scene, including a lot of Ohio State. All right, Nathan, is it a $10 million club? They have 10 full-time assistants now. Have they hit the $10 million club in overall salary pool for the Ohio State assistants in 2023? Not yet, but they're on pace too. They were at eight point eight million in change last year, and that was by everything I could find. It was believed to be the highest in the nation this year. And I have not double checked this against every uh, pool in the country this year, but it's at nine point three right now. So up another half million. This these new raises put them at nine point three million. And uh, I know that I, it's out there that Alabama's pool is like nine point one seven, something like that. And this is about another 150,000 above that, 160,000 above that. So uh, it, it very, it very well might be the biggest salary pool in the nation again. And if they continue at that rate, so another another 500,000, for instance, a year from now would put them right knocking on the door of 10 million. So should I ex- excuse myself from this discussion? Do I have too much of a history of complaining about assistant coach salaries for me to be a relevant arbiter of the latest news on this. Should I just let you talk for Nathan's like, if you're just, are you going to offer me the chance to talk for 15 (laughs) minutes straight without you interrupting? I even interrupted myself offering the idea of you talking for 15 minutes straight. Should I just sit here? I could take my headphones off or can I, or can I add anything to this Nathan? Because I don't know how I feel. Well, I know. I think those opinions that you've expressed before are relevant in this discussion now. Why don't I real quickly run down what actually happened with the salaries real quickly? Because um, it's, it's going to be somewhat old news. I know a few days behind, but um, I'll tell people what happened and then we can discuss them. Because uh, the, the, there's only really a couple here that really warrant, I think, a good discussion. Brian Hartline, his first contract as offensive coordinator will pay him $1.6 million. Kevin Wilson paid made $1.4 million prior to that, so it's a raise for the position overall, though he, he all, Harbaugh, or, I'm sorry, Hartline also also coaches a more um, a, a bigger group than, than Wilson did with the receivers versus tight ends. Uh, but that's, all, that's a big raise for him. He was $950,000 as receivers coach, and that had been a good bump from the year before. So they've been taking care of him money-wise. Uh, Tim Walton bumps up to $1 million with a $300,000 raise. That's the one, and there's one other one, but there, there are two that kind of raised the uh, eyebrows of our texters that we heard from, and I tried to explain to them what I thought was maybe going on with with, with those um, last week when this news came out. Justin Fry also up 200000 to $1 million. So along with Larry Johnson continuing to make uh, $1.167 million, a small raise for him, and then Jim Knowles also kind of just a small, you know, the, the cost of living raise that you apparently still need when you're making $1.9 million. But that gives Ohio State $5 million assistance. And it was a big deal not that long ago when they had million-dollar assistance for the first time, right? And now it's that's half the staff 
half the staff's making a million or more. Running through the rest of them, Keenan Bailey's first contract, 400000 Uh Parker Fleming gets a new two-year deal that pays him 500000 annually. That's 200000 more than he was making prior as the special teams coach. And uh, Tony Alford, uh, again, uh, kind of a just a, a common raise up to 772-500. Perry Eliano, similarly, now making 515. Corey Dennis, similarly, now making 412. So just some standard raises for a lot of the guys on the staff, but obviously also some some that got significant bumps. And we should I should also say with Tim Walton, I, I verified this with Ohio State because it changed the language in his contract to be from assistant coach to assistant head coach. And Ohio State told me that his title now actually is defensive passing game coordinator. So I'll, we'll try to find out more from Ryan Day Tuesday what that might mean, if there are some additional duties, if it takes something off Jim Knowles' plate. I don't know. But that that is – or maybe it's just something they had to call him along with giving him a $300,000 raise to $1 million. Yeah, it's just a lot of semantics. Uh, they, they just want everyone to have – being an assistant coach like isn't cool enough. Everybody needs like more of a title than that. So it doesn't, I mean, run game coordinator, pass game coordinator on both sides of the ball. Assistant head coach is one of those things that does come up. They pass that out sometimes. The only time I've ever seen that really matter, I think it was, I think Daryl Hazel back in the Trestle era had was the assistant head coach in that kind of way. And I think maybe Trestle during a bowl prep was out of town, like at the Heisman with Troy Smith, like Daryl Hazel ran practice one day. It's like, okay, well, so it, I think a lot of it is the money matters. Follow the money. So it is interesting to me to have five guys making a mill or more, one of them making almost two mil, and then having four of the other five at basically half that. So you have Two guys in the 400s with Keenan Bailey and Corey Dennis and two guys in the 500s with Parker Fleming and Perry Eliano. And like the only guy kind of in the middle is Tony Alford, who's at 750. He's basically right in between. So there's the five guys in the million dollar club. Then there's like the half million dollar club. And then Tony Alford is the only one that's halfway between a million and 500,000. It is part of this, Nathan, when we look, I, we, anybody, Looks and says, huh, Corey Dennis, Parker Fleming, Keenan Bailey. You wrote a story about Keenan Bailey. Keenan Bailey is the one that I had the least issue with of all the promotions from within. But if you did not have these three young promoted from within people where you didn't have to go out and get them and persuade them and perhaps woo them and get them with a little bit of a bump because, hey, it's this person from East Carolina and Oklahoma State was talking to them too and we had to go. You're just promoting from within. You can't have five assistants making more than a mill unless you have these other people making much less. It is an imbalanced staff, Nathan. And that is interesting to me because I don't know what that means. Is this the smart way? Hey, they basically have a t- almost $10 million worth of assistance. You could just pay 10 guys a million dollars each. Hey, let's get $10 million assistance. Cool. I don't know. Probably all pretty good. Or you could have it this way, where you have half the staff basically making double than the other half of the staff. Is that anything? Is this smart? Is this Ryan Day not only trying to es- establish stability and cohesion and rewarding people in-house by promoting these assistants, these guys to a full-time assistant, is he also balancing the budget 
while he's doing that? Is that part of his consideration? What do you think of the balance of this money? It's there. I, I've had, I thought a lot about it actually the last week, and there there are ways that I that things I think might contradict each other. I, I thought a texter brought up a good point actually when I sent out those. They responded and said it it looks like this is like it's like they're the way that they're distributing the money takes into account that it's an imbalanced staff between offense and defense. Like, is that why Tim Walton is getting the raise that he did to $1 million? Like, is he, is it reflective of additional things that he has to take on? Is it, you know, Parker Fleming getting a raise of the kind he did? Does that mean that more is now expected of him from the things he was talking about with you about, you know, beyond special teams, the things he does in the defensive back room? Or is this an example of, uh, there was a job that I had where I was a a part-time employee, one of several and a newspaper job. But at the end of the year, our boss would always tell us like, hey, um, you're only working like 28 hours next week, but put down 32 because they'd have to. He wanted to make sure they used up all the hours he was supposed to use that year for part time, because if he didn't, then they wouldn't. Those hours wouldn't be in the budget the next year. Like, so is some of this like is, is this being gamed a little bit like Ryan Day sees the value of being able to say we have the highest paid assistant coach group in the country and they want to stay there. And this is how you justify it. I don't think it's that. I, I don't think it's Ryan Day looking at being like, oh, jeans on my butt. Oh, man. Hey, uh, Tim, put down uh, let's put down Tim for a $300,000 raise. If you don't spend it, we're going to lose it. Well, because, I because think you can also send a message to these guys by whether or not they get raises or not. The big raises. Well, it's also – but is it – are you sending the message preemptively or is this the cost of doing business with great coaches and if you don't pay them this, they'll leave, right? So you look – right. What what is it? Is it preemptive or is it reactive? Because part of this is, if this is, I wish I could have a four-hour conversation with Ryan Day about staff building when it comes to this kind of thing. It's like Parker Fleming and Corey Dennis and Keenan Bailey are so appreciative of the opportunity that, frankly, they would not be getting anywhere else. There's no way they would get jobs this good with their resumes anywhere else. And I know when you reported the Keenan Bailey story, he had offers and that kind of thing. Alabama wasn't offering him a full-time assistant job, right? Right. That's not what we're talking about. It's like, go be a full-time assistant at somewhere lesser or stay here and you'll eventually be a full-time assistant here. So you bring in those people that you trust because you know them, but you don't have to pay them as much because you really are giving them an opportunity that they wouldn't get elsewhere. But then also you aren't worried like, oh man, this is kind of one of our cheaper coaches. I hope he's good because you've known them. You have the belief without having to pay for it, right? Yes. I actually think Perry Aliano should make more money than this. I don't know why Perry Aliano, who coached Sauce Gardner and Kobe Bryant at Cincinnati, and I co- I know Perry Aliano worked his way from the ground up and was at Texas State, was in the MAC and that kind of thing, but it's like I think Perry Aliano, in charge of the safeties in a safety-driven defense, right. should make more than $15,000 more than the special teams coach who we have a problem trying to figure out what he actually does. I, this feels wrong to me. That definitely, so I don't know it, why Perry Liano makes this much. That definitely hit people's eyes and ears weird that Tim Walton was getting this big raise and Perry Liano was getting just like the the standard annual raise. Like that, that I think people were curious about and I'm curious as well. So, because I, I think we kind of viewed them, I don't know if equally is the right word, but similarly, when they were hired, Tim Walton and Perry Liano, like, hey, these are two kind of established dudes who are here to like fix this secondary. Yep. But Tim Walton has a long NFL resume 
And Perley Aliano had been at Cincinnati for a couple of years and had come from the Mac before that and did not have the same kind of resume. But then when you look at what they're supposed to do here, is Tim Walton twice as valuable as Perry Aliano? And sometimes you are paid on your resume, but this gap feels too big to me. One thing I'll say about Walton is he also has coordinator experience. He's been a defensive coordinator, both at the college level and in the NFL with the St. Louis Rams. So that's what I was saying. Like, is there something with the balance between him and Jim Knowles that now he's going to take on some bigger part of the game planning each week? I don't, I don't know, but something is worth $300,000 and it could just be all part of one year into this. Did they realize here's something that needs to be taken off of Knowles's plate because he is the linebackers coach. And even if you're bringing Jim Laurinaitis, James Laurinaitis in, um, God, I got to stop doing that. James Laurinaitis in, uh, there's still maybe some things that need to be rearranged here and it's worth more for Walton. And it's a, also the thing you're saying about preemptively, like, yes, yeah, sometimes you pay people things that so such that if you lose them, you're only losing them to certain jobs is maybe the best way to say it. So like yeah, Tim Walton, isn't, different... you're not going to lose Tim Walton to another cornerback's job in college, but you could still lose him to a big NFL job, even if he's making seven figures. So the, the thing we talk about all the time, with the discussion is like, how are, are these guys replaceable? And I have always landed on the side of college football is a head coach player world. And everybody else is middle managers. Brian Hartline at 1.6. That's a jump. It's interesting to me that it jumped over what Kevin Wilson, who had been a head coach, who had been a longtime successful coordinator at Northwestern and Oklahoma. Brian Hartline is now making more than Kevin Wilson ever made at Ohio state. That's interesting to me. But Kevin Wilson also came to Ohio State off getting fired at Indiana and was not in a position of like strength from his kind of side of of negotiating. Whereas Brian Hartline is viewed as one of maybe the best offensive position coach in college football. People are interested in him. He's out interviewing. 1.6 for Brian Hartline. Does this mean he is... Very, very difficult to replace, and whatever you got to pay the dude is worth it because he's Brian Hartline and he's integral, integral to Ohio State success. Is that how you view this one point six million for him? Yeah, I, I think this was probably some, maybe a little bit of a makeup for how good he was when he was still, especially lowly paid assistant. Like you're rewarding a guy who probably did turn down some things also these last couple of years and, and showed some loyalty here. One thing that's interesting about the the Heartline language is last year when he got the race to 950000 there was language that he has to pay a buyout of a certain percentage of that if he took a – unless he took a job at a Power 5 or Notre Dame or BYU uh, as a head coach or primary play caller. So he would not have had to pay a buyout in those situations where the school hiring and wouldn't have had to pay a buyout. The new language takes out the primary play caller since that's what he is now at Ohio State. So he would only not have to pay the buyout if you're going to be a head coach somewhere. And it only talks, uh, there was no NFL language in there, which I thought was actually a little bit interesting. It was only other college jobs. So um, so you will not, you know, Ohio State, you would assume this, with, will not lose Brian Hartline to be the offensive coordinator somewhere else. Or if they do, somebody will be paying for him to do it. Does that language and or the raise to $1.6 million lock in the idea that he is calling plays for Ohio State this year. That this Ryan Day thing of like, hey, we'll test it out in the spring. We'll see how it goes. Well, you know, that he's he's calling plays. Is that uh, it? 
No, I wouldn't say that. It's a three-year deal. That may be still something that they ease him into. I, I don't know that I would necessarily say that that language that that tells you that, but it's also telling him that, like, listen, you're in a position here where you've got the title. We want to give you that. Whether it happens by this fall or not, I don't know. But before the end of those three years, I would expect it to happen. Yeah, because then it, it takes away the incentive uh, after if you dangle that over him for three years and he never gets it. Well, how much is he really advanced? And then now he maybe is looking for something else. Okay. Justin Fry up to a million dollars, a $200,000 raise. Offensive line coach, I do think with the departure of Kevin Wilson and the way Ryan Day has talked about it, and just again, what I saw when I was in the film room, like I think this this guy takes a, a heavier load in the entire run game discussion. We've talked a lot about, we think Justin Fry is here to be on a head coach path. Is this the cost of, hey, this guy is a good offensive line coach. He's a guy on the rise. Somebody might want to come poach him. Cost of doing business with a guy like this is a million dollars. And what do we think of the idea of that? Is Justin Fry already irreplaceable or, or a guy you would not want to have to replace? So you got to give him a million bucks. Uh, yeah, I don't know about irreplaceable, but I think they see a value. I think they think that he did good things. The players, um, even the ones on their way out, the ones we talked to in Indy at the Combine, all had good things to say about the influence he had on their performance last year. I think there's also another maybe small dynamic here at play where when Justin Fry came here and you know that Kevin Wilson will go for the first Tulsa or better opportunity, you have to be thinking to yourself, well, maybe I could be the next offensive coordinator at Ohio State. And I don't know what conversations exactly happened around that. But like to you were giving up that title from UCLA to come to Ohio State. So some of that may also be baked in here a little bit, like a little bit of a, a make good. Yeah, but also the title at UCLA, that was a fake title. Chip, sure. Chips, Chips Kelly's running the show at UCLA. Just like sure. last year, like while Kevin Wilson was here, he had influence for sure, but it's a fake title. Ryan Day is the offensive coordinator, right? So um understood but you when you when when he when he goes to become a head coach you're trying to negotiate off your resume a little bit too no i know i know but that's that's why they do all this stuff so that you can go it's like did you did you like watch the game did you talk to the people in the building like what the guy actually did who cares what his title is but people care so i don't know i think you can get into a very day this is the now i'm just back to my thing like you can start persuade to convincing yourself that everybody's irreplaceable and all of a sudden you have five two million dollar coaches and five one million dollar coaches because oh my gosh how could we i mean justin fry is good i don't know he'll be gone and they'll get the next guy this is i i guess if this is the one well, of million dollar coaches now so be it i don't know but it's also like i mean what job is justin fry leaving for is he leaving for any other offensive line coach job in the country like i think he's here until somebody wants him to be a head coach he's here until Indiana no, but, fires tom allen but but the but the idea of this too is that justin fry being here is great for Justin Fry. Right. Like you don't have to you don't have to keep I don't think you have to throw money at Justin Fry to keep him here. Cuz if Justin Fry was like, "Oh man, I can't believe you guys didn't give me a raise to a million dollars. I'm out of here. I'm going to Washington State." It's like, "What are you doing?" What like what, do you, do you want to be a head coach? Then okay. This is how you learn to be a head coach. You're going to come to a place where you're going to try to win a national championship with a with a a really smart offensive guy that you're friends with running the show. This is the best place that Justin Fry could be. And UCLA was good too. He's a Midwest guy. Went to Indiana. Like he, that's where he wants to be. He's a big 10 guy. 
This is the perfect job for Justin Fry at this point in time. So then it's one of those, like it's perfect for him. So I don't know. I think he could get away without giving him a $200,000 raise. And was the play so extraordinary last year? Because you know why it was extraordinary? Because Paris Johnson is going to be a top 15 pick and Dewan Jones is going to go in the first round and Luke Whipler is going to go in the second or third round. They had really good offensive linemen. And also, Stud was maybe tailing off at the end. But also, Stud, Stud left the cupboard pretty stocked for year one in terms of guys on the field. Donovan Jackson's a pretty good guy to be left as well. So I don't – This is one. Of, this is one – Probably Walton and Fryer, one of those. It's like, what? Like you have you this guy's getting a twenty-five percent raise after a year when he is already in the perfect job for his career that is going to lead him to an opportunity to make a ton of money somewhere at some point. Ohio State had to give him next two hundred grand. I don't think they had to. I, I hear what you're saying. I guess there's I, I, I it is worth a, a long, like long sit down with, with someone like Ryan Day to explain some of this. And, and it probably wouldn't be on the record. Some of it would have to be on background to be just like, what's really going on? Cause I'm sure there's politics and all sorts of things that go into this, but there's also a message that you're sending to the next coach you're trying to hire, I guess that, you know, when, with the year that you have three guys who might go in the first two rounds of the NFL draft, even if they weren't guys you recruited, that's worth a certain bump then you know that that's a message you're sending to the next guy that you hire by the way i would just like to put everybody on alert if he's going to make a million dollars i want to see it in recruiting yeah, let's see it 100 how yeah. can this guy make a million dollars and our whole conversation is man i think they're going to have to play with no tackles in the next three years end that conversation tomorrow justin Fry. you're getting a million bucks this is not drive down the road to an Ohio high school and take the best guy within an hour radius of Columbus and proclaim a recruiting class. Go win, million-dollar coach. Go win. Or maybe wait until he lands a major offensive line recruit beyond the borders of Ohio or Indiana before you give him a raise to a million dollars. That's just me. That's just maybe how I would look at it, but people know where I stand on that. But and and there were, but there were a couple of, I mean, again, Tim Walton, a couple of successes this year in cornerback recruiting. Got two top sixty. No, no, no. So we're moving to Tim Walton. So, but but Justin Fry, Justin Fry, that was Justin Fry. Did we have the Justin Fry? Can we go to the Justin Fry recruiting scoreboard right now? Austin Saravell, Josh Padilla, Luke Montgomery, all from Ohio. They come here to play for anybody, literally for anybody. Okay. Yep. 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 So then what else? And then we got the guy with the Dartmouth offer. Okay. So let's see it. Raise the stakes. Raise the money. That's what raise means. Raise the stakes. Tim Walton, three hundred grand. Go get him. Right? So, Jermaine Matthews in your backyard. Great. We're all excited Jermaine Matthews is here. Jermaine Matthews was dying for an offer, right? Anybody here with eyeballs would have watched him in camp and given him the offer, right? Calvin Simpson Hunt seems like a win. That seems like a Tim Walton win. Okay. Congratulations. It better be a $300,000 win. <laughs> Because you got it. That's a gigantic raise. Go win. We better see some top 100 cornerback recruits in the next year or two because you're not getting paid a million dollars to bring in a recruiting class of cornerbacks ranked 251, 312, and 418 in the nation. Let's land top 100 corners and develop them and see, see what a million dollar coach looks like. Fair enough. Nathan's like, how far? I thought this was the part where Doug was going to not talk for 15 minutes. Now I'm suddenly being lumped in with his rants. Uh, how do I remove myself from this? Larry Johnson, minimal raise, you said? 
Yeah. 1.167. Yeah, like 30, 35 grand, something like that. Yeah. Which I guess is like keep doing what you're doing. Also recognizing that we probably are past the point of like super peak Larry Johnson. So this is something to monitor. That's not, well, it's not a shot. That's not, that's just reality, whatever. We'll see. Yeah. It's like any other job. He's a little bit out of like runway from a, from a title standpoint, you know, like he's, he's not a coordinator. You can't have, you can't pay him more than the coordinators. So. And then Jim Knowles, we always say he's a $2 million defense, uh, defensive coordinators because he gets like a car. And you get like a guy, I think in this contract, there's a guy who comes and washes his car every week. I think they, someone mulches your yard. Um, what else do they do? I think you get free Uber Eats every Friday night. It's it's hilarious to me. Of all the things in college spending that you read these contracts where guys are getting, again, $1.9 million a year. But there is the clause where he also gets the $600 a month um, auto allowance, the, the car allowance. And I'm like, what? And then my favorite, my favorite version of that was at, again, at Purdue when Jeff Brom famously had that in his contract where he got that per month and then still just drove like the same Honda Accord for, <laughs> for like the whole first like four years of his contract, just like a very used old beat up Honda Accord. So I think we covered the rest. We're, we're wondering why Perry Eliano doesn't make more. Tony Alford has the only guy in between. I think Tony Alford still, you know, does harbor head coach aspirations. Tony Alford's making seven seventy five, right? Roughly. Yeah. My main question is, why aren't Justin Fry and Tim Walton also making seven seventy five? That basically is my question. Yeah. So that's that's like that to me. It's like okay, Knowles is the the coordinator you had to go get. Hartline's the rising star who you're promoting to play caller. Larry Johnson is a legend who's been making a million for a bunch of years and they're the top three. And then there's a middle tier that's Knowles Fry Alford. And then there's your young guy tier. I just don't know why they bumped Walton and Fry out of that middle tier. And, but like Tony Alford didn't get bumped. So I guess we kind of went through all that, but that kind of is where I land on this, Nathan. Yeah, I get it. And there's some of it is who has coordinator titles and who doesn't, you know, Heartline had already gotten pushed money wise beyond, Tony, even before this year, like you even go last year, there was still a gap of a couple hundred thousand for them. So uh, I, I, I don't know how much of that is just sometimes the best way, the best way to get a raise is to get a job is to get a job offer from someone else. Right. Like that's, you can go in and say like, Hey, I'll stay, but it's going to take this. Like that, that's the best way to get a raise. And, and Heartline has obviously, I think we've heard things behind the scenes that that has probably happened for him. I don't know that that's happened for Tony. I don't know how much he sought it. So no, no, but, but, but Heartline's not my issue. I'm right. talking about Fry and Fry and Walton. So yeah. like, yeah, Heartline, I get it. But like Fry and Walton, I don't know. Did someone come to Justin Fry and be like, Hey, did someone come to Tim Walton? And be like, Hey, I don't certainly, we didn't certainly hear about it. So whatever. I Fry, guess it's Fry fine. was already making more than offered by a little bit. So, so, but then, but like, why did he get a jump when Tony did? Right. Yeah, no, I, fair I get it. Yeah. But, now, but now they're not in the same tier anymore. Right. So, it is uh, – should Ohio State, in in the end, Nathan, again, like Glenn Schumann, for instance, at Georgia, because uh, this is the time of year when this stuff comes out. Glenn Schumann, who is the co-defensive coordinator at Georgia with Will Muschamp, and 
Um, they took over that last year when Dan Lanning left, who was the defensive coordinator during the first title, to go be the head coach at Oregon. So Glenn Schumann in this past year made 800000 and he's jumping to 1.9 as a co-coordinator. And Will Muschamp, of those co-coordinators, is the guy who's been the head coach and has been around the block before. So I don't know what Muschamp's making. I don't care. We'll just give it an example. Stuff's jumping. We get it. Stuff jumps. There was a time when the Big Ten didn't play this way. And this also is the difference of Ohio State's in the Big Ten, but in some ways is not of the Big Ten. Bottom line is Ohio State, when it comes to paying assistant coaches, is number one right now. Should they be? Or should this be one of those where it's like, ah, Bama, Georgia, LSU, ah, SEC, they're crazy, man. What are you going to do here at Ohio State? We certainly want to pay people fairly, but if somebody is really looking just for money and just for like, that's the only thing they care about, then we're not going to go there because guess where they apply that logic right now? NIL. They're saying like, hey, if a kid only cares about money, then we're probably not going to recruit him. Oh, okay. Well, is that because you have a philosophical approach to that or is that just because you don't have the coffers in the collective and as soon as the collective has more money you'll be like no we'll pay people who only care about money because why do you have the biggest assistant coach pool if you are claiming that you don't want people who are only here for the money because you just love rewarding people that much or you happen to have all the best coaches there's no part of this that's like hey you know what's a reward being at ohio state 10 Football coaches in the whole country get to be assistant coaches here. Ten. It's a great city to live in. They have a they have the Piata right down the road. It's right down the road. Piata. You get the spaghetti inside the Italian burrito. You can win at the highest level. Temperate, right? There's no lake effect snow. This is a great place to work. We don't have to be number one because we could be number four number eight, and still get great people who want to be here for the right reasons. Once upon a time, I think that's actually how they thought about it. And if somebody like me or somebody with a pen or recorder or a microphone would have said to Gene Smith, hey, Gene, how come you guys are so cheap about assistance? I think he would have given an answer along those lines. But now it feels like Ohio State happily thump is happy to thump its chest like we're number one. And my question is, do you have to be? Because the money has to come from somewhere, right? Whatever you're giving here means somewhere you're either not giving that money somewhere else or you're making money more money somewhere else, which is usually from people. So if your parking went up, if the concessions go up, if the price of tickets goes up, I mean, it all has to come from somewhere, Nathan. So when I rant about money, I'm trying to keep the loop in mind because if money going out increases, the money coming in has to increase. And where did the money come from? From people who love Ohio state. I don't know. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Um, You're maybe not totally wrong. I mean, obviously there's going to be, there's more money coming in in terms of the big 10 network and things like that too. The new or not the big 10 network, but the new TV deal that the big 10 has. So that helps offset this a little bit. The other thing to remember is, the fatter your assistant coach pool is, typically the happier your head coach is. This is a way to 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 keep your head coach happy, too. That's one less thing for them to complain about. 
That's true. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way of the world. Because usually when I complain about that, then I hear from fans who are like, I'm fine. Take more of my money. If it means keeping good coaches, I'm fine. I'll pay $5 more for a ticket. I don't care. Why? Like, don't complain. I'm like complaining on behalf of people who don't need me to complain on their behalf because they're fine. So I understand that's a reality as well. But at some point, if you don't raise your eyebrow a little bit, you just wind up paying everybody a gazillion dollars and just shrugging your shoulders and be like, well, that's the way it is. So I don't know. I'm not tying it to the player thing, though, because I like this is like we have to live in the reality that exists today. And if and when we ever do get to a point where schools have to pay players, there will be less money to go around. And this probably will be reduced a little bit. But my argument is not necessarily how dare you pay Justin Fry a million dollars when Ohio State did not directly pay Dewan Jones or Luke Whipple or Paris Johnson because the rules say they can't right now. And we all know that discussion. I don't want to muddy that entire thing because it's how it's the world right now. And just in the world right now, I'm not sure why Justin Fry and Tim Walton had to get a half million dollar in raises combined. That's all. Okay. Because after all, did they win? The, did they win? And by the way, that's the thing about this too. You're paid to win. And then when you win, you get huge bonuses for winning. Mm-hmm. Like increase the bonuses for the team that didn't win the Big Ten last year with Justin Fry and Tim Walton and did not win a playoff game with Justin Fry and Tim Walton and did not win the national championship with Justin Fry and Tim Walton. So just say, hey, we'll give you even more bonuses if you do those things. I don't know. I'm not sure. It ends up, it's like how it works in the NFL when, or baseball when you have salary arbitration. You wind up like talking down people because mm. you're trying to not pay them as much. I'm not saying that Tim Walton and Justin Fry are bad coaches. I'm not. I'm just saying the thing I always say. There's more of them out there, and I don't think you have to pay them a million bucks because working at Ohio State is a pretty great place to work. Okay, when we come back, we're going to briefly watch you, little watch you. That is, Nathan made a very good point about Big Ten basketball as it relates to Big Ten football, and that's what we'll focus on next on Buckeye Talk. All right, Doug and Nathan, as we record, it is Sunday afternoon, and we couldn't wait until Sunday night. So as we record, we do not know the outcomes of Indiana and Michigan State and trying to make the Sweet 16. At the moment, we do know that eight Big Ten teams made the NCAA tournament. Five of them won in the first round. Three of them lost in the first round. So five and three in the first round is actually not terrible. Sorry, yeah. But then of the three teams on Saturday, all three of them lost. Northwestern, Penn State. And uh, Nebraska? No, was it Ohio State? Was it Ohio State that lost on Saturday? I can't remember. There was. I wanted to make a joke because Eric Muslow. Who was the other Big Ten team that lost on Saturday? I can't even remember. Um, I literally can't remember. It's okay. It's actually not okay. It's a terrible podcasting. I was going to say, wasn't it odd to watch Eric Musselman, the coach of Arkansas, they – won and advanced to the Sweet 16, and he jumped up on the table courtside and took his shirt off and was waving his shirt above his head. And I thought to myself, I can't imagine Chris Holtman doing that. And then I want someone to say, I can't imagine Chris Holtman taking his shirt off. I said, no, I can't imagine Chris Holtman advancing the Sweet 16. <laughs> like, that's like my setup for my joke. Uh, so, Mar- um, Maryland was the other Big Ten team that lost. Oh, Maryland lost Alabama. But those three teams, I actually thought 
that Northwestern and Penn State played very well. Yeah. And I think with right matchups, I I think you could convince me that Northwestern and Penn State were, quote, Sweet 16 worthy teams, especially Penn State. Mm-hmm. Penn State, I think by the end of the year, was one of the 10 best teams in the country, Nathan. They just dug themselves enough of a hole that they were only a 10 seed in the tournament, which they wound up playing Texas, who, by the way, is the team that I picked to win it all. I just think Texas is also hot. They won the Big 12 tournament and really good. And I think there's a bunch of teams that Penn State could have played and beaten. And they just got a bad matchup because it took them t- too long to get going. So I don't know. It's I'm not like blaming Maryland, Northwestern, and Penn State. They lost to a one seed and two two seeds. Yeah. And I think they acquitted themselves pretty well. But the main thing is Purdue. And so let's what we're watching is the tournament. Make your point about the mighty Boilermakers losing for the second time ever as a one seed to a 16 seed, the second time in the history of the tournament, as people know. Yeah, as I was watching that game that night, and for people who, who didn't, you know, Purdue is a very, you know, they've really bought into this thing where this is their program. They're going to play through non-NBA post guys, and then when teams take that away, you're supposed to hit threes, and uh, that didn't happen, obviously, against Fairleigh Dickinson in a historic first-round upset. And what I said to you, I sent you a text, and I was like, that thing that you've mentioned before about maybe Ohio State is built in football to win in the Big Ten, but then that means you're not built to win in the playoff. And I said, this is what that actually looks like. Like Purdue is built in a very like 1980s, 90s kind of way to win the Big Ten. And listen, they won the Big Ten by three games this year. And I was not, I do not think the Big Ten was a very good league this year. Uh, I brought that up when Chris Holman was kind of whining about, hey, what are you guys talking? What's all this criticism? The Big Ten's really good. I'm like, what? Um, and so, but in any year to win the big 10 by three games is legit. And then to go in and win the tournament is legit uh, on top of each other. Maybe they were just worn out. I don't know, but they, it, it's very clearly a, I, so my point to you was, this is what that actually looks like when the, when the essence of you can't then make that transition and then go win at the next level. Cause Ohio state, I don't think that's actually the case. Ohio State went. Well, so I'm going to interrupt you here because that's not what I say about Ohio State. I say the opposite about Ohio State. Right, I say right, Ohio right. State's built to win on the national level, but maybe they're and not both, built right. to get through the Big Ten. Oh, okay. right. Permit this. What you're saying about Purdue would actually apply to Michigan football. I think this is the worst version of of Michigan football's future, which is we have a way to get through the Big Ten, but we are just never, 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 mm-hmm. never going to get over the top nationally. Right. But this is. What what the point that you're making is this to you is the most classic example of we can win in our own context, but we cannot travel with our way of winning. And well, I think Purdue's history bears that out. Yeah, well, uh, but actually, I would say it. Uh, you, you have to take it beyond that, though, because this is what you would say if Purdue were getting into the NCAA tournament every year and then they lose to a really athletic team from the SEC or they lose to the, they can't get past that like Duke, North Carolina stealing in the ACC, or they lose to the teams that are coming out of the Pac-12 that have something going, but they're losing to 13, 15, 16. That's their last three years in this thing. They lost to a 13 in the first round. They lost to a 15 in the Sweet 16. They lost to a 16 in the first round. So there's something systemic also that's happening here that isn't just that your style of play isn't traveling. So what, so the, I, the, the thing that I, and I do think it's certainly not exactly the same. But we are talking about the team that just won was just the best team in the Big Ten in a major sport. 
and fell on its face nationally. And it has a history of falling on its face nationally, both recent with what you just outlined and not so recent with the fact that Purdue hasn't made a final four since 1980. Right. Mm -hmm. What. And, and we happen to have a former Purdue beat writer on this podcast, which is makes this extra interesting. So I think I'm, I'm on my pursuit of joy. Fans should be able to enjoy their teams. And I don't think you want to live in a world where you're, you're so critical at the downtimes that it takes away enjoying the good times. Where do you believe the Purdue basketball fan base to be? Because again, I think this is just informative. We're having a discussion about fan base that wants to win, that is winning, but not really getting where it wants to go. Where do you think they are? Because again, I maybe, you know, this is not where Ohio State football is right now, but I think it's an informative discussion generally. Well, I think there are some other football parallels here because at least if you were like, let's say Michigan this past year, you win the Big Ten, uh, you go undefeated and you even though you get into you play TCU and get blown off the field, you can at least say, well, we won the Big Ten, we won the Big Ten championship game and we won our rivalry game. So, you know, if you're a Purdue fan, not only did you now have the, I think, arguably most embarrassing first round loss in the history of the NCAA tournament. You also got beat by Indiana twice this year. You you got swept in your rivalry series. And when you're talking about like fan enjoyment, that that whatever that spectrum is, like those two things have to hammer you really hard. And it takes away a lot of the joy that you would get from winning by three games and winning the, the conference championship game uh, tournament and having the potential like national player of the year. Um, and there was something else that it related to football that I thought it that related to Ohio State football. I thought of this week, too. Um, and it relates to that, the Indiana thing, because Purdue has had a, 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 a period here where Indiana had clearly sunk. And if the one thing like Purdue has more big 10 championships than anybody else in basketball and Indiana has the five banners or whatever they have. And the one thing that Purdue could have done in this stretch when Indiana was at its lowest was Purdue was at its highest and it could have seized that moment and actually made at least a final four. Like, don't worry about a national championship. Just at least make that final four in that drought. But now they weren't able to do that. Indiana, you're looking at them on paper. Like, it wouldn't shock me if Indiana made a final four this year. And I wonder if that window has has closed a little bit to, to make that move. And now you look at Ohio State and Michigan. Um, Ohio State had this period where it was not only trouncing Michigan, but it probably it could have further emphasized its national dominance and wasn't able to tack on another championship in that stretch even though it got there many times and had s several swings at it so um another another small point of comparison between the two but i think in the case of purdue talking about just like the fan base enjoyment I, I it's the opposite of ohio state because at purdue i think this is their identity that this is just kind of who they are something's always going to go wrong they almost i wouldn't say they accept it because they certainly don't like it they've been vocal about it this week but i think they also are just so accustomed to being something going wrong like this and, and it, it not happening. They can only be great to a certain level. Whereas at Ohio State, you have enough precedent of being ultimately great, of actually then getting there and finishing it off, or at least getting into that championship game or, or a Final Four scenario, in, in whatever the football equivalent is, that you always have higher expectations than that. You, you, you're never going to allow yourself to be discouraged to that extent. So. And I want to have a coaching discussion around this very quickly because, again, I think I think we can – this is an interesting general discussion. So Matt Painter has been there 18 years now. 
17 shots at the tournament because one was canceled, has made the tournament 14 of 17 years and didn't make it in year one, which is your rebuild, whatever. Yep. So since then, he had a two-year blip in the middle of his tenure where people thought maybe he was going to leave. He didn't leave. 14 of 17. Eight of those years, they've been a top four seed, and they've never made the final four. Gene Cady was there for 25 years. The year before he took over was the last time they made the final four. Gene Cady was a top four seed, I think like 10 years or something. Like was a top four seed all the time, never made the final four. But they love Gene Cady. Gene Cady's like a legend. Is that what like Matt Painter can stay and be Gene Cady? Or is it possible that Purdue and Matt Painter should think about, you know what? Maybe we just need to break up because we're maybe not bringing out the best of each other, that there's something else out there for somebody. Cause you know who I think I'm not saying fire Matt Painter off of this. I've, I've always thought Matt Painter's really good. If you give me Micah Shrewsbury tomorrow and the next, whatever of Micah Shrewsbury who has deep Indiana ties was a Purdue assistant before I got hired by Penn state. I think the job that Micah Shrewsbury did at Penn state this year there, I would take that guy in Columbus yesterday. If you can see that and Matt Painter can go to another great job somewhere that he danced with 10 years ago. This is like, right? This is like a big boy coaching discussion. This is a big time program with big time aspirations and a big time coach. Should that be on the table? Yeah, at some point you've got to ask yourself that because the standards the, the standards have shifted. In that in that transition from Katie to Painter, the standards of college basketball success shifted. When Gene Cady, especially at the start of that, he took over at a time when they still hadn't they hadn't yet expanded the tournament. So, like being the best team in the Big Ten, winning the Big Ten championship was still the most important thing to everybody in a real way. And this is before the Big Ten tournament either. So when you you were winning the you know playing like a true round robin and winning the Big Ten in a a I think it was a true round robin back then um, or close to it, like it, you were winning the Big Ten in a real way, and that had it, it felt substantial. And then the, the the national tournament was almost like a an extra thing on top of that, almost like the way bowl games used to be when they would vote for the national champion in football. And then, but as the as the sport started to get a lot more popular and a lot more um, national, and that was what was handed to to Matt Painter. And now, I think that you have to judge success in a different way. It can't just be winning the Big Ten. Because at some point, like, listen, like Tom Izzo's won a bunch of Big Ten championships too. There's also been a bunch of years where Tom Izzo didn't win a Big Ten championship, but somehow he knows how to coach a team through a number of different opponents and get them into a cha- get them into the Final Four. Like, he's done that several times now with different iterations of Michigan State. You know what I mean? Like, it's... It, it, that, that, I don't think that's a coincidence. Like you know, uh, I think Ohio, I think Purdue fans would love to have this is the this is the real comparison. Like Kelvin Sampson is kind of like a villain in the state of Indiana because he got run out of Indiana for being a like borderline cheat guy. It was just about phone calls. It wasn't like he was rotten to his core. But like left Indiana in a bad place. Ohio State fans or Purdue fans, I'm sure I know they did like laughed at Indiana for having hired Kelvin Sampson in the first place. But you know what Kelvin Sampson does every single year, like has a team that gets into the tournament and then quite often like they win multiple games and like go deep into a tournament. And like I, but Purdue fans don't want that because they don't want it to be feel a little bit slimy. So you're a little bit stuck. I, I'm not sure exactly what you're supposed to do there because the the underlying success is undeniable. But 
that you're also hitting a ceiling. And I think maybe that's a conversation. Are you kind of intimating that that's a conversation Ohio State will eventually maybe have to have at some point? Because no, no Chris, I mean, Chris Holtman and his dreams. No, no, no. no. I'm talking about the football. No. I'm talking about the football. Oh, um, the football part. Now, no, yeah. no. No, I, I'm thinking of it theoretically. I'm not looking for a direct comparison here. Gene Cady, by the way, 25 years at Purdue. The first 20 years, made the tournament 16 of 20 years, was a top three seed eight times, was a number one seed three times, never made the final four. And then the last five years, he tailed off. He only so, made the tournament one out of five years and then handed it over to Painter. So it's very really similar to where Painter is right now. And that's the other thing that's working against someone like Matt Painter is you're, you're, you're tournament futility is on top of the tournament futility that came before you who the guy who was your mentor and kind of the guy who well, picked you. but is it working against you or is it working for you? Because Purdue has proven that it put up with that for 25 years yeah. and viewed that guy as a legend, not as a uh, guy who yeah. never got there. Like the path is there. Gene Katie, people don't, when you say Gene Katie, people don't go, Ugh. right. Do they? Well, it depends, Lafayette, on the uh, it depends on the person. Depends on the person because there's certainly do? people who some do. Sure, okay, sure. There's certainly people who are like, well, but what did he ever win? And that was kind of I remember at the time. It, the timeline is a little off. Matt Painter had like flirted with Missouri before they had that dip, like right before they had that dip. But that was or right around the same time, maybe. And and I I remember having a conversation with someone in media at the time, local media, who was like all freaked out about Painter leaving. And I'm like, why? Like you can go find another coach to win you this baseline of games, right? Like why at some point, like, so I, I, that's why I said before, like there's something systemic here because it's, it's been repeated that you can get into the tournament and just completely fall on your face against teams that barely are getting into this tournament at all. And you're a number one seed. Um, but I also think if anyone were to go like watch the, the post game, press conference that Matt Painter did, you would understand why he's so respected by other coaches, by people in the media. But at, at some point there is something wrong there that has to get fixed. So I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a very, a, a much smaller conversation is what I'm thinking about in terms of Ryan day, not in terms of like whether he deserves to be fired, but like two years in a row. Now the Michigan thing hasn't worked. So what's going on in your head right now as to how that has to change going into year three. So the one thing that I that to pull this all the way back around to an Ohio State discussion is I don't think Ohio State would tolerate I I know Ohio State wouldn't tolerate this. Gene Cady would not have lasted 25 years at Ohio State. And Matt Painter, I don't think would have lasted 18 years at, at Purdue at this rate. I think, and it's not a perfect comparison, but I think it's a little more like Earl Bruce. Yeah. Like Earl Bruce won nine and three. He was five and four against Michigan, nine and three Earl, right? I mean, he wasn't winning the Big Ten every year, but like they weren't yeah, horrible. It's, it's and at some point, Rutgers. you couldn't tolerate it. What's that? Matt Painter is better as a basketball coach, or more successful as a basketball coach than Earl Bruce was as a football coach. And and it's hard to compare football and basketball, yeah, yeah, but like yeah. Coop, they, they, again, Coop wouldn't last thirteen years in this environment. If you look back right. and realize right. two ten and one, and they put up with like it right. wouldn't, it would you no. wouldn't last. If Ryan Day, that's like. Ryan Day does that. Ryan Day is not going to be here 13 years. Right. So I just, this is a little bit of the BA discussion again. That, And I think Purdue to Ohio State, and it's not because, not just because you're a former Purdue beat writer. I think Purdue to Ohio State is like the exact right lens for this. That there are things that you can, and I don't even know if get away with is the right phrasing, but you can succeed at a level at Purdue that people will tolerate. And by tolerate means not run you out of town. That you just, it is not what should or is accepted here. So 
Matt, you know, you can start saying like, hey, man, like, hey, Doug, you're all up, up, up on Holtman. He makes a tournament every year and he never makes a Sweet 16. But like, what's Matt Painter ever done, right? Well, I'm just telling you, Chris Holtman is never going to be Matt Painter. Because if Chris Holtman had Matt Painter's resume at Ohio State, Jeff Goodman could complain all he wants. He was not going to last 18 years. So that's like just because at Ohio State, it's more of a BA thing, man. You're not going to put up with that. I think Even so. if, frankly, Purdue should be better at basketball than Ohio State. But Purdue, perhaps because of the size of the university, just like its place with Indiana in the state, whatever, Columbus versus West Lafayette, maybe what Gene Cady established, right? I don't, that, right? Would you agree with this theory that just the lens of Purdue, the context of Purdue is different than Ohio State when it applies to something like this? I think that, yes. And some of this is size and scope. Some of this is, is money, frankly. That, but I, I, it came up in relation to the interviews you did with the other head coaches recently on the pod. That, and I think Stephen made the point that there is the, the same standards for go down the list. I mean, the, the the pistol team just won a national championship. Like, go down the list of all these championships. Like, the the standards are higher. The expectations are higher across the board at Ohio State. So, I think at Ohio State there is more incentive to say to your basketball coach you have to be nationally relevant like it takes up a bigger part of your analysis than maybe it does for a Matt Painter at Purdue because Purdue across the board doesn't realistically expect to be nationally competitive in as many things like it doesn't have the same standard you can't let the standard dip in your flagship properties because that gives the an excuse for the water polo fencing soccer golf everything else to dip as well yeah. And I do think in the end, also, it is an indictment of Big Ten basketball this year, which I a thousand percent agree with yeah. you with the idea of like, what? Everybody, this was a fake good. And I don't even know if it was fake good. I think the only people who thought it was good were the coaches. I don't think fans were sitting around saying like, oh, man, wait till the Big Ten gets to the tournament. It was a mediocre conference that somehow that giant, big, mushy middle never figured out what a freaking 16 seed figured out. Triple team the big guy and let the chuckers chuck. What? How did this not derail? I know Purdue lost a couple games in the middle of the year, but as you said, Nathan, they won the Big Ten by three games, which is a lot of games to win a conference by. The Big Ten couldn't figure out, oh, well, Zach Eady, he's unstoppable. And Fairleigh Dickinson's like, no, we know how to stop him. We, we got it. It's like, oh, would have been nice if one of these multi-million dollar coaches would have figured that out in December, January, February, or early March. Yeah, won the Big Ten by three games, but like I said, lost to Indiana twice. So beat beat the rest of the field by five games collectively. Um, and and Fairly Dickinson, like as two players, like two of their best players are D two guys. Last year, their coach was a D two guy. It's like this team shouldn't have even been in the tournament. It was a technicality; they were even in the tournament. This is the worst, I think, like the worst NCAA tournament loss ever. This is worse than Virginia. The only thing Purdue has going for them is that they don't have the ignominy of being the first one. But also, but it reflects on the Big Ten. And I am over, I think, the Big Ten national title discussion, which I was very into when it was a long drought eight years ago. And now it's just ridiculous that the Big Ten hasn't won a national title since 2000. And I don't know. It might just be that they suck. I mean, what else? And, and now, now, listen, while having that discussion along the way, Indiana lost in the national title game. Ohio State lost in the national title game. Illinois lost in the national title game. Wisconsin lost in the national title game. Michigan lost in the national title game twice. They've had all these schools 
who were right on the edge. And listen, Michigan was good enough to win a national title. Greg Oden and Mike Conley were good enough to win a national title. Yeah. Dee Brown and Darren Williams were good enough to win a national title. Frank Kaminsky and, I don't know, some other guy, they were good enough to win a national title. Like, it just never happened. The Indiana one was kind of fluky that they got there. But, like, so I get, right, they've been close. But also, like, show me that now. Like, it's they're worse than, like, they're down. Show me Greg Oden and Mike Conley in yeah. this, like, Zach Eady. They should like, no, I mean, Zach Eady's oh, triple team, the tall guy. He's going to be back. Oh, at, yeah. No, yeah. Triple team, tall guy. I'm pretty sure he's going to be back at Purdue next year. Like he's not, he's not an NBA player. I mean, seven, four guys who can't really shoot. Don't play in the NBA now. Like that's, and that's, that's, but that's a choice that that program has made. That's what they're going to build around. So, um, by the way, I would not expect, uh, I would be interested to see who Penn state gets to take over for, for Michael Shrewsbury. I would not expect him to be back there next year. Yeah, I don't know if they can. It's one of those things. I, I I do think about this sometimes. It's like, well, I don't know. Why couldn't you just make Penn State good at basketball? We just talked about money. Why can't Penn, why couldn't Penn State throw a, a gazillion dollars at this guy and say, be the guy who takes Penn State basketball to somewhere it's never gone before? Just be that guy. And like, don't go somewhere else to like continue a tradition. Stay here and start a tradition. I would like, what what is all this TV money for? Not to pay assistance. Pay that guy. Pay that, make that guy the highest paid college basketball coach in the country. I don't know. Do what Michigan State did with Bell Tucker. Keep him. I would like to see Penn State try to do that. So I agree with you because that guy is really good. But I also, it's not like, it's not, it's Penn State. They're just in the mountains. But it's not like, it's it's not like we're asking Northwestern or Rutgers to keep a coach like this. We're asking Penn State, Penn stinking state. Build the tradition. Get kids on the East Coast to want to go play for Penn State because it's going to be a great basketball program. Do it. I would love to see them try to do it. But, yes. But also that he should stay in the Big Ten. Like, I don't know. Who else could, Who else can fire their coach to keep? Well, uh, who could be? Do we know? What would be like an underachieving Big Ten program with high standards and expectations that maybe could make a move and then get Micah Shrewsbury? I don't know if there's a program that would fit that description right now, because it's like, I mean, Michigan State has Izzo and Juwan Howard's not going anywhere. I guess there probably isn't high standards, bad. I don't think there's one that would apply. So I don't know if there's a place for him to go in the Big Ten. There's, Penn State. there's an opening in the Midwest right now, though, that I think would maybe make a lot of sense for him. Notre Dame. Yeah, that could definitely probably happen. Well, I, I like I like when things happening at other schools that aren't exactly like Ohio State, but are similar enough that allow us to view that through that lens. I like I like discussions like that. So I'm glad we got to do that. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening. Back to football this week. We have we are planning to have right Nathan. We expect Tuesday and Thursday Ohio State football practices, followed by Ohio State football interviews, yes. which would then ex- we would expect then to have Wednesday and Friday podcasts that are based on interviews with Ohio State football players and coaches. We don't necessarily believe that will include watching practice, but that's okay. We want to talk to the guys and see what's up. And then Ohio State's Pro Day is Wednesday. So we will then expect that the Thursday podcast will be some sort of recap what we learned from Ohio State's Pro Day. So Ohio State was on spring break. Not much happening this past week. Lots of stuff happening this week. We hope you stick with us at cleveland.com slash OSU on the texts at 614-350-3315. And of course, 
here on Buckeye Talk. For now, for Nathan Baird, I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Mm-hmm.